going to read God's Word in two different texts this evening. First, Psalm 50. And then we'll turn to the New Testament, Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. We read these passages in connection with the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. Psalm 50, we'll read verses 1 through 15. A psalm of Asaph. The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee, I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. For I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Why eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving, and pay thy vows unto the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, the history of Paul's missionary journey, accompanied by Silas. We're going to begin reading at verse 16 and read through verse 31. Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city of Athens wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some say, What will this babbler say? Other some, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him, and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, Do we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? 
for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men and that he hath raised him from the dead. We stop our reading of God's word at that point. May God bless the reading of the Holy Scriptures unto our hearts. It's on the basis of these passages that we have read, and many others besides, that we find the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 42. Question 110, what doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by, by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right as by unjust weights, elves, measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of his gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also, 
that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are considering the second table of the law that God gave unto Moses of old. The first table of the law pertains especially to man's relationship with God. The second table of the law pertains especially to man's relationship to the neighbor. The fifth commandment teaches us how we are to relate to father and mother. We are to honor all those in authority. The sixth commandment teaches us how we are to live in respect to the neighbor's body. Thou shalt not kill. The seventh commandment teaches us how we are to behave in relation to the neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And now the eighth commandment that we consider this evening teaches us how we are to behave in relation to the neighbor's possessions. Thou shalt not steal. Let's consider this eighth commandment under the theme respecting our neighbor's possessions. First, we'll consider what is the reason, the basis for this commandment. Second, what is the commandment itself? And then third, what is the blessing that God gives unto us? Why is it that God came to Israel of old and continues to come to the church of today and say, with authority, thou shalt not steal? What do we learn of God in this? We see, first of all, what stands behind this commandment is the reality that God is the sovereign owner and the sole proprietor of all things. Everything that has existence upon this earth, every person, every inanimate object, all gold, all silver belongs unto God. The psalmist declares this truth in Psalm 50, starting at verse 9. God says, I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. God is the sovereign owner who claims everything as his own because of the fact that God is the creator out of nothing. God shaped the heavens and the earth and all that is therein. Paul declared this truth in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, 
dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And thus it is that every bit of wealth upon this earth, all gold and silver, all dollars and all cents, belong unto God. And no capitalist may, in the ultimate sense of the word, claim that this money is mine. For ultimately it belongs unto Jehovah God. God is the owner and the sole proprietor of all things. Not only is the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is therein, but he is likewise the father of providence. As the father of providence, he is the one who then distributes to each man according to his fatherly wisdom. He does not, according to his perfect distribution, give to everybody the same amount of earthly possessions. To some, God is pleased to give many earthly possessions entrusted to their care. And to others, God is pleased to give a lesser amount of possessions. As a general rule, though there certainly are exceptions, there is a correspondence between the amount of gifts and abilities that God gives to an individual on the one hand, and on the other hand, the amount of possessions that God gives unto that individual. If God wills that a person have many gifts and many abilities, that that person be physically fit, sound in body and in mind, able to understand and communicate and reason. As a general rule, God is pleased to give unto that gifted individual many earthly resources. But on the other hand, to the individual whom God has not given as many gifts, to the person who struggles with sickness day by day, to the person who does not have the same abilities of intellect or understanding, God is generally not pleased to give unto that individual as many earthly possessions as what he gives to the neighbor of greater abilities. For the person who is sickly all the time, a great percentage of his income goes to covering the bills, hospital bills. So try though he might, he is not going to have as many possessions as the neighbor. But in all of this, God is sovereign. It is no chance that some are gifted with lots of money large homes and prosperity and others have less. Not only is God sovereign over this, but God is also good. 
Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. If you read through Psalm 136 sometime, you'll see the many different ways in which God reveals his goodness to his people. And some of the ways in which God reveals his goodness is striking to us. To overthrow Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. For his goodness, for his mercy endureth forever. Who slew King Sihon and Og. For his mercy endureth forever. We don't always understand how or why God is good in giving to this individual much and to this individual less. But always the confession of faith that the Christian makes is he is good. That's the first pillar that stands beneath this eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. The God who owns all things by virtue of the fact that he has created and that he distributes to all creatures comes to us and says, don't steal. The second pillar that stands beneath this eighth commandment is this reality that God calls us to be stewards of what he has entrusted unto our care. Stewardship, that's the position that you and I occupy in relation to the possessions that God has given unto us. That we are stewards means that we must manage our earthly possessions in the name of God. And it also means that we must be ready to give an answer unto God. For as those who are appointed by God to be stewards, there will come the judgment day where God will require of us to give an answer unto him for how we managed the earthly possessions that he entrusted to our care. The Catechism describes this position of stewardship. The end of answer 110, God forbids all abuse and waste of his gifts. That's poor stewardship, not using or or rather abusing the gifts that God has given you. And then positively, what is required of us? Answer 111, that I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. This idea of stewardship is nothing new to those who are the people of God from the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, God called Adam to be a steward of the things that the possessions that God had given him in that garden. We read in Genesis chapter 1, God's command to Adam, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Stewardship. Stewardship implies a certain responsibility that is given unto us. As Christians, we may not merely shrug our shoulders in indifference towards things physical. We must not squander the gifts or the money that God has given unto us. We must not say, well, because I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and because I seek first Jesus Christ and his righteousness and trust that all these earthly things will be added unto me, that therefore I do not need to manage in a careful way what God has given me. We're a steward. And we'll answer to God for how we manage the possessions that he has given us. But stewardship also means that we are not the final authority on the matter. Stewardship means that God is the one who ultimately owns all things. This shows unto us then the failure of every proposed earthly economic system. Throughout the history of this earth, man has come up with various different ways to structure society and ownership of possessions. There's the tyrant. The tyrant claims that he ultimately owns all things. Others may, in this kingdom, may use some of his things, but ultimately he is the one who claims that he owns it. There's the communist or the socialist. The communist claims that all people collectively own all things together. So no one has a greater share, no one has a lesser share, but everybody receives an equal share. Or in Western culture, with which we are most familiar, there is capitalism. Capitalism revolves around self. I own this. And you do not own this, and therefore you do not have the right to take this away from me by virtue of the fact that I bought this. But you understand that none of these earthly economic systems reflect the reality that God owns everything. All the gold, all the silver, and all the wealth upon this earth belongs to Jehovah. And he calls us to be stewards. God calls us to be stewards in the context of a community. We are not stewards of possessions out on an island all by ourselves. It's not as if God gives us possessions that are entrusted to our care, and then there's nobody else around us. But the reality is God gives unto us possessions entrusted to our care in the context of the neighbor 
to whom God also has given possessions. And because our hearts by nature are prone to covet and to lust, that's then where the temptation to steal comes in. It's because I see how much I have, but I also see how much the neighbor has been given by God. And if I judge that the neighbor has been given more of something than what I have, or if I judge that it is more important for me to have this than for the neighbor to have this, that's when then the temptation comes in to steal what God has entrusted to the care of the neighbor. Thou shalt not steal. So understanding then that God is the sole proprietor of all things and that God calls us to be stewards of what he has entrusted to our care, let us consider then what is it that God requires or commands of us to do. The Catechism emphasizes in answer 111 that we are to labor. Second half of the answer, further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. It's striking here the purpose that the Catechism gives for our labors. It does not say faithfully labor in order that you may pay the bills for your home. It does not say faithfully labor so that you can prepare for retirement or prepare for a future crisis or emergency. But the catechism, as it gives unto us the requirement, the calling to labor, calls us to labor so that we can relieve the needy. The catechism in teaching us that purpose of laboring is not giving unto us an exhaustive list of why we are to labor. Certainly we do labor so that we can pay the bills. And yet the catechism emphasizes on the basis of God's word that the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of why we are employed is so that we can give it away. You consider that, young people and young adults, as you look for your first job or as you look for a job that gives you a better paying wage, you are to labor so that you can give the first fruits unto the kingdom of God. The Catechism calls us to labor faithfully. God forbids, end of answer 103, all abuse and waste of His gifts. The more I get to know this congregation, the more I see that God has blessed this congregation with many different gifts and many different abilities. There are members of this congregation gifted in communication, teachers, those who know how to give a word of encouragement, those who are gifted in writing, 
I've seen in this congregation members who have good and keen financial understanding, those who are astute in money management. There are members who are, have gifts of empathy, who have the ability to relate to someone who is going through a difficult and low time. And those who can, in a loving way, respond to the struggles of others. I am thankful to God for the gifts that God has given to the members of this congregation. And it is my earnest desire that you would not abuse or waste those gifts but that you would labor faithfully so that you might be able to relieve the poor and the needy. But then the question begs to be asked, if God has given unto us so many different gifts, diversity of gifts found among this one congregation, what is it then that holds us back? Why aren't we more quick to help out or assist the neighbor? Why are we reluctant to step up in times of need to assist those who are hurting? And I believe it's oversimplistic to respond with, well, we're lazy by nature. It's more than just laziness that inhibits us from assisting and serving one another. Is it not, beloved, the fact that by nature we are proud and it's the haughtiness of our hearts that prevents us from being willing to assist others? You understand that with assisting others, there, there requires a certain vulnerability, a certain opening up of oneself unto others. If one is going to make a meal and give it to a family in a time of need, then you, one is exposing oneself to critique of that meal. And then the fear of, well, what will that individual think of this meal that I have made holds one back. Or another position where I could serve or minister unto others, teaching or assisting or helping in this way, but then understanding that assisting in that way will open oneself up to critique and then pride enters in. And pride prevents us from wanting to assist. Pride not in the sense that I think that I'm so gifted and this person down here isn't worthy of receiving my help. Not pride in that sense. But pride in this sense that I am worried about having my weaknesses exposed. And so as the turtle pulls its head back into the security of the shell, 
so we by nature withdraw and hide instead of using our gifts and talents to help the other members. Christian humility is required to seek the good of the neighbor. Humility which is the opposite of pride. Pride is focused upon oneself. Pride wants to be recognized. Pride wants to be known. Pride wants to be wealthy. And pride wants to be praised and honored as the wealthy individual. Pride worries about the revelation of any weaknesses unto others. Pride is the opposite of Christian humility. Christian humility is not concerned about self, but Christian humility desires that God be recognized, that God be known, that God be honored as the God of infinite wealth and power and love and justice. This attitude of humility characterized the Apostle Paul as he preached on Mars Hill in Athens. Consider the context here in which the Apostle Paul was laboring. The Word of God teaches us in Acts 17, verse 18, that Paul was surrounded by Epicureans and by Stoics. The Epicureans and Stoics were philosophers. They were the lovers of wisdom. They were the educated, the wise men of the day. They were the men who were supposed to solve problems, who were supposed to guide and assist society at that time. And there stands Paul in comparison to these Epicureans and Stoics. He is unlearned in comparison. And here Paul stands up in the midst of them, And Paul begins preaching to them, verse 23, about the unknown God whom ye ignorantly worship. Him declare I unto you. Now what is it that gave the Apostle Paul the ability, the courage, to stand up there in the middle of these Epicureans and Stoics and accuse them of ignorance? It's not as if the Apostle Paul was so brave inside of himself that by the conviction of his own strength or the determination of his own will, he stood up there and preached to these Epicureans and Stoics about their ignorance. But no, what gave the Apostle Paul the strength to stand up and to preach was the fact that he was blessed with true humility. Humility loses consciousness and awareness of self and is filled with thoughts of the greatness, the holiness, the love, and the justice of God. That's humility. Acknowledging that God is the great 
the unchanging, the I am that I am, loving that God, seeking that God, and wanting to live faithfully unto that God. Humility recognizes and confesses that I and you as individuals are dispensable. The building up of God's kingdom does not depend upon you or upon me, but God uses us as agents, as stewards upon this earth. Acts 17, verse 25, Neither is God worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. God may be pleased to use you in a particular position for a while, and in that position then God calls us to labor faithfully so that we might give to those who are in need. But then when our time in that position is finished, God makes that clear unto us, and God removes us from that position, and he raises up another individual to serve. True Christian humility acknowledges that God uses me for a season or two, but then God will raise up somebody else to continue on this work. True Christian humility recognizes that God can use people even in their weaknesses and sins for the good of His covenant. God used, as we were reminded this morning, laughing Sarah to be the mother of His covenant nation. God used Gideon with 300 men equipped with trumpets and lamps to fight against and overcome the Midianites. God used Elijah with 12 barrels of water and a simple, short prayer uttered in faith to call down fire from heaven. God does not need you to be perfect for you to be used to assist the neighbor and relieve the needy. It is only in Jesus Christ that God takes sinful people with sinful works and perfects them and their labors with the blood of His own Son. What a freeing thought this is then to understand that God could use you with your weaknesses and your imperfections for the good of His church, for the good of His covenant, for the good of the Christian school. This is not an excuse unto sinfulness to permit one or encourage one unto further sinfulness. This is to acknowledge that so long as we live in the midst of this world which has come under the curse of sin, and so long as we ourselves have that old man of sin 
within us. There will not be a single work that we offer unto God that of ourselves is perfect. We depend upon the atoning work of God's Son to take our labors wrought with many imperfections and for Him to sanctify them and present them to the Father. But a blessing God gives to us then as He strengthens us to labor and labor faithfully to relieve the poor and the needy. He gives unto us as a gift of His love day by day our daily bread. He does not always give unto us what we would want, what we petition Him for, but He gives unto us bread that is sufficient for the moment. He gives unto us daily bread that strengthens our bodies so that we might be able to live unto the glory of of God. God's wisdom is this that He gives unto us things physical and then presses those things physical into the service of that which is spiritual. He gives unto us as well the gift of peace. Peace in knowing that I have labored diligently to the best of the talents that God has given unto me. And now at the end of the day, I can lay my head down upon the pillow and receive that gift of God of sleep. Peace. And knowing that Jesus Christ takes our imperfect works and perfects them through that one sacrifice on the cross and crowns these works with His blessing. Peace. And knowing that God will care for me and for my children. For He provides our every need through the church, which is our spiritual mother. And hope. He blesses us with hope. A hope of a reward earned by the selfless love and death of the Son of God. Hope of a reward that no thief can break in and steal 